Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to May's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. In this edition of Recharge, I'm delighted that we got the chance to speak to Jean-Louis LeMay, the CIO of Westbeck Capital's Energy Opportunities Fund. His fund managed a return of 49% up to the end of April this year, when oil prices were collapsing left, right and centre. And he gives some really interesting insights into the current situation in oil markets and what we could expect over the next few years. Insights that have significant implications for the future of electric vehicles and batteries. Before that, here's a quick recap of some of the key features, news, and analysis from May's edition of Battery Materials Review. Our focus article this month is on hydrogen. Many people believe that hydrogen and fuel cells are competitors to batteries, but we suggest that instead, they should be seen as complementary technologies. We discuss how this could be the case and what the future may hold for fuel cell battery hybrids. In the raw materials space this month, there are a number of companies under pressure because of continued low raw materials prices. And one of the biggest of those is China's Tianqi Lithium. We discuss what could happen if it's forced to sell assets. Talking of selling assets, Australia blocked two Chinese investments in Australian listed companies in April. We discuss what the implications of this resource protectionism by Australia are likely to be. In exploration and development this month, we draw attention to Poseidon Nichols' Golden Swan discovery, but the real news was AVZ Minerals' long-awaited DFS for the Monono Hard Rock Lithium project in DRC. At $546 million US dollars pre-production capex, it's quite a chunky project, but given its size and scale, that was to be expected. It's clear that infrastructure is going to make or break this project. There were two other feasibility studies in lithium this month. For Ioneer's Rhyolite Ridge project in the US and Lake Resources Brine project in Argentina, and there are some interesting comparisons between the three projects. Elsewhere, it was another lousy month for financing in April, with only 32 million US dollars of capital raised in the whole of battery materials, and funds raised are now down 87% for the year to date. While it's tough if you're a junior company and can't raise money, I can't help feeling that this ongoing funding shortage is likely to extend and elevate the raw materials cycle over the next few years. There was a lot of production data out in April for calendar Q1, and the good news is that we continue to see a fall in spodumene concentrate output in Australia and a fall in inventories. Our shipments to inventory ratio for the Western Australian hard rock producers looks to be bottoming out nicely, and given current mine inventory levels, we expect that SC6 prices could recover more quickly than expected once demand comes back into the system. And that could even be as early as the end of 2020. Moving downstream now, there were mixed numbers for EV and battery producers with BYD and CATL both warning on profit for Q1. But there are signs that the EV situation in China is not as bad as expected, with NEO reporting better sequential sales in March. And subsequent to month end, China as a whole reporting better sequential EV sales in April. We believe that changes to China's EV subsidy policy should be positive for EV sales between May and July, which could provide a welcome boost to the sector, just as European EV sales start reacting to the Q2 lockdown in most European countries. 
a fascinating battery life cycle report by the Environment Campus Birkenfeld in Germany suggested that production of batteries using renewable energy lowers CO2 emissions by 69%. This could have substantial implications for the European battery industry. I also believe that if the battery raw material supply chain is closer to battery manufacturing, the reduction could be greater still. Finally, a report on GTM flagged that up to 69 gigawatts of triple hybrid renewables and storage projects has been mooted in the US in the medium to longer term. That is a lot of storage. In our data roundup this month, European EV sales continued to surprise on the upside, but we are obviously expecting them to correct in the second quarter. Chinese smartphone sales slumped in the first quarter, and we expect small battery demand to be down in the first half. China's flake and spherical graphite exports bounced back, although spherical exports are still a bit subdued, and China was destocking cobalt raw materials in March. In our materials ranking, rare earths dropped two spots with nickel and spodumene concentrate moving higher and we remain positive on vanadium and high purity manganese. April was a great month for battery materials equities. Our raw materials baskets managed between plus 11% and plus 59% performance, significantly outperforming wider equity indices. Having said that, equity performance for our battery raw materials baskets remains extremely subdued over a two-year time horizon. Vanadium was April's top-performing basket with our graphite basket in second place. Both of our lithium baskets lagged in April, but we would expect them to make up some ground in May. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interview now. I'm very pleased today to welcome uh, Jean-Louis Lemay. He's the CIO of Westbeck Capital's Energy Opportunities Fund, and he's also co-CIO of its Volta Battery Strategy. His energy fund is up 49% year-to-date April, after being up 39.5% last year. So it's probably fair to say that he's got a pretty good handle on global oil markets at the moment. Jean-Louis, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, great. Now, uh, starting off with demand, we've obviously had pretty significant demand destruction associated with the coronavirus pandemic, but signs now that demand is starting to tick up. Do you think we've seen the lows for oil demand in this cycle? Yes, we we definitely have. And actually, uh, demand losses probably were not quite as extreme as uh, as uh, consensus was assuming uh, in April. I think most people believe that uh, demand losses uh, in April, looking at all the lockdowns being announced uh, all around the world, were close to uh, 30 million barrels per day. 30%, which of course is uh, is completely unprecedented. But actually looking at uh, actual uh, uh, inventory data, as well as talking to people like BP who have uh, a specific insights through their, uh, uh, their petrol uh, station network, as well as their jet fuel business, it looks like demand uh, losses in uh, April were only around 20 million barrels per day. So it's obviously still a, a number with, with no precedent, but it's not quite as dramatic as, as the 30 that a lot of people were, were assuming. And we're already seeing uh, a demand start to, to bounce. It's been uh, very clear in, uh, in China. In China, even though economic activity hasn't fully recovered yet, gasoline demand, for instance, uh, is essentially back pre-COVID levels. 
And uh, in different parts of the world, uh, obviously in the US, we get high frequency data on, on a weekly basis produced by the, the Department of Energy. We've seen over the last uh, two weeks now, pretty big bounce also in, uh, in, in gasoline uh, demand. So yes, it's safe to say that the, uh, from a demand standpoint, the, the worst is behind us. Okay, and, and sort of in percentage terms, how much do you think the oil, oil demand will be down on average for 2020? We don't really know, and it's, uh, it's a difficult question to answer. It really depends on uh, how quickly uh, demand is going to recover over the, the next few months, which in turn is really linked to the, the time frame to get a vaccine. And obviously, a few weeks ago, I think consensus uh, assumed that uh, fully functioning uh, vaccine available uh, for everybody was probably uh, 12 to 18 months away. And that time frame seems to have uh, condensed uh, very, very significantly. And now there are lots of discussions that uh, a vaccine could be made available potentially before the end of, uh, of this year. And uh, oil demand, obviously, is going to be uh, very, very sensitive to, uh, to people uh, feeling comfortable to, uh, to travel again. So our working assumption is that for demand to, to normalize, so essentially... Uh, demand to be back at 2019 levels, we need that vaccine to be available. So it, it could be end of this year, early 2021 event, uh, or it could take longer, you know, maybe middle of 2021. So depending on, uh, on that trajectory, the, the demand losses for, for this year are going to be really quite different. But, you know, on average, we should, uh, we should lose probably uh, uh, eight to nine million barrels per day over, over the course of the year. We've seen WTI prices in the US go negative in the past month. Uh, we're hearing a lot about storage being maxed out. Could that happen with other listed oil prices around the world? The short answer is most likely no. There's lots of crude prices that uh, traded negative uh, on the 20th of April. Uh, essentially, uh, all the crudes that are priced uh, as a differential versus WTI so pretty much all the different crudes uh, trading in North America and, and in Latin America. So uh, lots of different crudes were trading negative. That being said, it was very much uh, a technical event as opposed to a fundamental event. WTI is a very specific benchmark. The other main benchmark, uh, Brent, is completely different. Brent is, uh, uh, is priced as a mix of several offshore producing fields in the North Sea. So there's no storage issue for Brent. The crude can always be stored on oil tankers. And Brent is also financially settled when the front contract expires at the end of each month. WTI is a completely different beast. WTI, the point of delivery is Cushing in Oklahoma. So it's landlocked. And the, uh, both the, the logistics and the storage capacity around Cushing is quite limited. And to complicate the situation, WTI is physically settled. So if you're long the, the front contract of WTI into expiry, you actually have to uh, take delivery of, of the crude physically and store it in Cushing. And what happened on the 20th of April, a financial player, and it's rumored to be the, uh, the main Chinese oil ETF, was caught with a very long uh, paper position the day before the expiry. Because of the threat of Cushing reaching tank tops, almost all the financial players had already rolled away from the front contract. And it's really only a few physical players with storage in Cushing who are still involved in the paper market. 
So there was very, very little liquidity left. And when that financial player had to uh, exit their position, effectively the, the physical player saw a very big opportunity and, uh, and the financial player had to pay all the way to minus $40 to get out of, out of the position. So it was a, a very, very uh, specific event. It means the next day we saw a collapse in the next contract, the June contract, and that was triggered really by uh, all these oil ETFs who have been gathering a lot of assets since the beginning of March. And all these ETFs are sold as, a, as an equity product to retail, so they cannot handle uh, negative prices. So the next day, all these ETFs either had to liquidate the June contract or roll their lengths further down the curve. And that triggered a 65% drop in the June contract on the, on the 21st of April. And it's very unlikely that we're going to see something like that happen again. For one, all the ETFs by now do not have any legs anymore at the very front of the curve. They've all changed the formula and effectively spread their lengths across the, the first 12 months of the curve. And also, it looks increasingly likely that we are going to avoid tank tops in Cushing. That ties up with what's happening on the supply side, which I think we, we, we might touch on. Okay, that was fascinating. Thanks very much. So, as you said, moving on to supply now, we've obviously seen some quite significant moves over the last few months. Could you talk us through what's happened with the Saudis and the Russians turning on the taps and then possibly talk a little bit about the cutbacks that have happened most recently? So, really, the relationship between the Saudis and, and the Russians started deteriorating over the last months. Some of that uh, happened with a, a new uh, oil minister uh, taking over for the, for the Saudis. But essentially, the Russians haven't really uh, delivered on the cuts that have been uh, active since uh, the end of 2016. They tend to always do a little bit less than promise and do it very, very late. So there was a lot of frustration on the, on the Saudi side. And the Saudis uh, came into the OPEC meeting at the beginning of March with the intent of uh, increasing the size of the OPEC plus cuts. And effectively, the Russians who had a view that demand losses from the pandemic were beyond the reach of a, of a small incremental cut, and obviously they, they were right, decided uh, not to play ball. The Saudis were very upset. Themselves, they realized that we were likely to lose a lot of demand and then made the decision to effectively uh, optimize their revenues so knowing that prices were going to collapse uh, no matter what, being the lowest cost producer, they decided to really uh, open the tap and push their, their production to, uh, to the max to try to uh, maximize their own revenues. And that was the state of play until two things happened. The first one is dramatic lots of demand that was taking place in the second half of March and beginning of April. The Russians found themselves in a difficult situation. The Russians have very little storage, and a lot of their crude goes to uh, inland refineries in Europe. And as the, all the lockdowns in Europe really started to, to gather pace, and all these refiners uh, were forced to, to cut runs, effectively, the Russian crude had nowhere to go. So the Russians found themselves in a situation where they now had to actually cut production. And uh, Trump used this to go back to the Saudi arguing that uh, he had convinced the Russians to, uh, to change tack, obviously applying a huge amount of pressure on the Saudis, who just had no choice but to comply and to agree to a cut. 
And the Saudis themselves were having some issues placing their crude, even by cutting prices very dramatically and trying to undercut the, the, the competition. The loss in demand was such that the Saudis were having big problems in placing the increase in production that they were, that they were operating. So all the stars aligned effectively for uh, the initial Saudi move to reverse and for OPEC cut to, to agree to uh, what is the largest cut in history for, uh, for OPEC. Okay, and uh, a lot's been made about the likelihood that the U.S. shale market was targeted by this. What's your view about the outlook for shale supply in the U.S. and also for other high-cost oil producers? It's a complicated question. Supply is, uh, is quite complicated, but it's also very exciting. And we think supply is the reason why uh, we're going to see uh, very, very high prices for oil on the other side of this pandemic. It's not really about, at the moment, where you're sitting on the cost curve. Uh, it's really about local logistics and whether you can sell your crude or not. And if you can't, whether you have storage or not. So what we're seeing at the moment, we are seeing production shut-ins really uh, taking place all around the world beyond the cuts that were agreed by OPEC+. Plus. So really uh, shut-ins that are imposed by a combination of lack of storage on a local basis and prices. And there, the negative price event we had on the 20th of April was a huge wake-up call for uh, all the North American producers in Canada and in the US. And obviously, shale is, uh, is a big part of that. So what is currently happening, we've seen uh, since uh, over the last three to four weeks, we've seen about two and a half million barrels per day of production being shut in between Canada and the U.S. And from all the announcements by uh, companies that are reporting earnings, we think that number is likely to grow to about four million barrels per day by the end of this month. So that's on top of the six million barrels per day or, or so that OPEC Plus is going to cut realistically versus production levels in the, in the first quarter. On top of that, you have production shut-ins taking place in countries like, uh, like Colombia, like Norway. So all said and done, on a global basis, we think 10 to 11 million barrels per day of production is going to be shut-in by the end of this month and through the, through the month of June. That's an enormous number. The only countries who have experienced of, of actually shutting production really are the Saudis, Kuwait and UAE's, the rest of these shut-ins are very problematic and uh, that production is not designed to be, be shut-in. So I was just going to ask you about that. How sticky is that? I mean, how easy will it be to restart that production if demand were to re-accelerate? That's really the first of three very important points on the, on the supply side. We think that out of these 11 or 12 million barrels per day that are going to be shut-in, a portion will never come back. So Goldman, for instance, estimates that at the very least, half a million barrels per day will be lost permanently. And we think another three to three and a half million barrels per day is going to struggle to come back to pre-shut-in levels. And struggling means it might take 12 to 24 months for, for production to normalize. And these are very big numbers. To put them into context, the global spare capacity available for the global oil markets at the end of last year was around 2 million barrels per day. So the market at any point in time is skating on, on very thin uh, spare capacity. So, so th these shut-ins are going to be a big problem. The second level 
which relates to your question about shale, beyond these production shut-ins, we are going to see uh, very sharp declines in uh, shale production in the U.S. through 2020 and 2021. All these companies, on top of shutting in some of their existing production, are cutting capex to zero. And shale, unlike the rest of global production, and shale is about 10% of global production, 10 million barrels per day, has very high decline rates. So shale is short cycle. Short cycle means production can react to capex with a lag of eight to nine months. But shale is very high decline rates. Your production peaks on day one, drops 65% in the, in the first year on average, 35% in the second year. And then after that, your decline rates uh, start to level off. But effectively, we've had very, very strong production growth uh, from shale over the last three years. And it means that the average decline rate from the current production base is very high. It's running around 50%. So all these companies are currently not only shutting existing production, but really cutting capex to zero. When I say zero, uh, for instance, the number of fracking crews, so the people who, uh, who complete these shale wells after they've been drilled, has dropped from about uh, 450 at the peak in 2019 to 50 at the end of last week. And that's going to keep on going lower and that's going to go very close to zero. So effectively, there's no new drilling or completion activity coming through. So shale is really going to be exposed to the decline rates of the existing production base above and beyond the, the shut-ins of existing production. So we, we know that these companies are going to be forced to keep capex, even if prices start to recover in the second half of this year, pretty close to zero through the end of this year, just to protect their balance sheets. So it's going to have a big impact on production, effectively through the end of, of 2021. So that's the, the second point on, on supply. We're going to see a lot of momentum in supply losses for shale long after demand has, has recovered. The last point, which is also quite daunting, is really that for the rest of global production, so conventional production essentially, uh, which is much longer cycle, we have a big underinvestment problem. And ironically, at the moment, in the first half of this year, we are still seeing the benefits of very large oil projects that were started when oil was $100 plus. It takes, on average, five to seven years to bring a large oil project online. So it's not completely surprising that you know, we are seeing now the last batch of projects that were started effectively in, in 2014. But since 2014 and the, the first collapse in oil prices, We've seen a, a dramatic drop in investment for these long cycle projects. Schlumberger estimates that versus the investments needed to offset decline rates for conventional production, we have underinvested to the tune of about $1 trillion. And in terms of production capacity, that translates into uh, 10 to 12 million barrels per day of missing production capacity. That's pretty uh, pretty significant. So what's that going to mean for oil prices in the near term, but I guess also in the medium to longer term then? We think we're going to see uh, you know, a steady recovery in prices starting pretty much now. Obviously, with all these production shut-ins, we are very close to a situation and with demand starting to recover, where supply equals demand. And from there, as we start exiting lockdowns in, in Europe and in the US, 
and all around the world, obviously, as demand starts to improve, even if it's a relatively so, slow improvement in initially, the market is going to start uh, moving into a deficit. So obviously, that should trigger a recovery in oil prices. It should also trigger the oil curve to flatten. The curve has moved into a, a very deep contango. Forward prices are significantly more expensive than, than spot prices. So we think the curve will start to move higher and flatten. But what, where it gets really exciting is uh, if you assume that you know by the middle of next year, demand is close to where it was in 2019. And if you look at the momentum in production losses from, from shale, from this permanent uh, damage from shut-ins, and also from the conventional production uh, starting to decline. And there, to put again uh, things into context, this lack of investment in long-cycle production is going to really uh, turn the, the oil markets on, on its head. Goldman, again, estimates that between over the last five years, non-OPEC ex-shale was growing at uh, five to 600,000 barrels per day every year. Over the next five years, because of that lack of uh, long-cycle investment, non-OPEC ex-shale is likely to go down by 500,000 barrels per day to a million barrels per day every year for the next five to six years. So we are really going to lose a lot of supply. And that means that obviously the, the curve is going to start to recover in, a, in the second half of this year and flatten. And we think the Saudis ideally would like to see the curve move into backwardation again. Obviously, front prices higher than forward prices. That makes life very difficult for shale that tends to try to hedge its production 12 to 18 months forward. So initially, the Saudis are likely to be quite disciplined and not uh, re-increase production. So you're likely to see the, the deficit increase as we go through Q3 and Q4 this, this year. And we really start to clean up the, the big inventory builds uh, that we had uh, in March and April. But as we go through 2021 and demand really starts to normalize and we keep on losing more non-OPEC production, then you're going to see uh, Saudis and the rest of OPEC really uh, run production back up. And where it gets a little bit scary is even with uh, very muted demand assumptions, by the end of next year, at least on Goldman's numbers, we're a bit more aggressive than that, you get to a situation where effectively within OPEC+, plus, everybody is producing at full tilt. Only the Saudis will still have a little bit of spare capacity left, and we're talking around 1 million barrels per day. So our, our view is that very likely by the second half of next year, and for the first time since 2014, the Saudis are again going to be uh, in control of the oil markets. And they need 80 to $85 to balance their budgets. So that's the type of price environment that we expect. And the risk is really to the upside. The so risk- there's a possibility that oil could go back above $100 a barrel, could go substantially higher than that? Yes, we think the risk of a big spike might not be uh, late 2021. It might come a bit later in 2022, but the risk of a big spike is uh, is increasing very, very, uh, very significantly. And effectively, we could find ourselves uh, in a situation uh, 18 months from now or two years from now, which is exactly the opposite of what we have today. Today, we need very low prices to curtail uh, production. Uh, 18 months from now, we might be in a situation where we have exhausted in uh, global uh, spare capacity, inventories are low, and then we need the uh, prices to actually uh, choke demand. 
And from what you're saying, this could be a prolonged period of very high prices. It's likely to be a different bull cycle from what we have seen in the past, just because the scale of the underinvestment uh, is really has no precedent. And also because ESG is going to have a big impact and impair the investment reaction function to higher prices. And what I mean by that is the majors particularly, which are the biggest drivers of big long cycle oil projects, all in the process of uh, setting up carbon neutral targets. Total this week just joined Shell uh, three weeks ago and BP and Repsol at the start of the year in setting a 2050 net carbon neutral target. And that means they have to invest a lot more money in renewables, a lot less money in fossil fuels. And within fossil fuels, climate activists tolerate gas as a cleaner transition fuel away from coal for power generation. But oil is really targeted as the really ugly duck. So we think it's going to be quite likely that even with higher oil prices, the majors are going to be in a very difficult situation to increase capex in in big oil projects the way they should. BP has already come clean and disclosed to reach their carbon neutral targets, regardless of the oil price environment, they would have no choice but to let their oil production decline. So this ESG pressure on, uh, on some of the biggest oil producers could effectively increase the, the duration and, and potentially the height of the, the next uh, bull cycle for oil. So sort of coming back to basics now then, with your other hat on, what do you think will be the impact of what's happening in oil markets on electric vehicles and battery demand? That's a good question that we are spending quite a bit of time on. Obviously, on on a very short-term basis, collapse in gasoline prices and oil prices is not great news for EVs. They look more expensive uh, compared to ICs, to the internal combustion engine. That being said, it's likely to be uh, a very uh, short event. And if we are close to being right on our oil view over the next 18 months, and then what's going to happen over the next few years, then it obviously uh, becomes a a very bullish story for for EVs and battery demand. A period of very high oil prices obviously is going to make EVs uh, reach cost parity very quickly. Potentially, we'll be there uh, before the end of, of next year. It's going to be very important for the U.S. market which obviously is where gasoline is not taxed anywhere as much as in Europe and in in China. So it's the market where it's most difficult for EVs to reach uh, cost parity. And obviously, very high oil prices are likely to put the US into play as well. I think before that big uh, crisis, our assumption on the EV side was that China and Europe were really going to be the, the two big drivers for EV demand over the coming years. But uh, if, if we move very quickly to a high oil price environment, then the U.S. Uh, is going to come into play as well. And then also, you know, obviously this, uh, this pandemic could have an impact on, uh, on the outcome of the, of the elections in the U.S. Uh, in November. And, uh, and if we have a change of administration and the Biden administration, then uh, that's also very, very bullish. He's already confirmed that they would be looking at some kind of green deal in the U.S. as well, following on Europe. And then that's a, that's a fantastic story for, uh, for EVs and batteries. Okay. And that's interesting. I mean, obviously, the quid pro quo from some commentators will be, well, how about if EV sales grow significantly 
according to the forecast we've seen, what impact would that have on, on oil demand? That's also something that we spend a, a lot of time on. And uh, the short answer is EVs are going to have a big impact on oil demand, but it's going to take a bit of time. So obviously, the, you know, the, the starting point is so small that even using very aggressive demand assumptions for, uh, for EVs over the next five years, and bear in mind that the EV value chain also has limitations in terms of, of raw materials, for instance, we struggle to see uh, a very big impact on oil demand on a five-year basis. We think as we get later this decade and move into the 2030s, then the story really starts to change and you start losing uh, a lot of transportation demand for oil uh, because of, of EV penetration. But EVs are very unlikely to change the bullish oil story on a four to five year basis. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jean-Louis Lemay, CIO of Westbet Capital's Energy Opportunities Fund. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for May. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.